frustrating, isn't it? Have you ever walked into a room and forgotten why it was that you went in there? You know, forgotten what it was that you went in for? And then you think to myself, oh, I have to go back to where I was 30 seconds ago to try and help me remember. I'm glad to see that there are young people and older people uh, nodding at this. Um, have you ever parked your car somewhere and completely forgotten where you wander around? Yeah, I have. Have you ever phoned the police because you didn't know? Yeah, I have, sadly. If only Apple invented Find My iCar app, it would be a lot easier for us. Forgetfulness then on that, on the one hand, is really frustrating that when you think of it, if you see the first picture up on screen, people have invented all sorts of things like knots for fingers to help you. That's going to cause ischemia in the end of your finger. You're going to your finger's going to fall off, but at least you'll remember what it was you were supposed to remember. People have, you know, they've invented whistles for keys, apps for iPads, brain training for consoles, post-it notes for office desks, and wives in general to help us remember things. Now, forgetfulness in life is frustrating and it's a hassle, but when it comes to the Christian faith, it's downright dangerous. Forgetting core Christian beliefs, forgetting the kind of things that Peter's been going on and on about in these opening verses, even in his first letter, the letter that precedes this one, forgetting all of the great truths of the gospel that he has passed on to them about the hope that they have in Jesus, about the growth that is possible in Christ-likeness through applying the gospel in our everyday lives, of the power that God has provided for us to become more and more like Jesus. If we forget these things, it's dangerous. It's so dangerous, in fact, that in this part of his letter, Peter is, he's really wanting to leave behind a bit of a legacy. Verses 12 and 13, we see he's saying, well, I know I'm going to die soon. I'm going to lay aside this tent. That wasn't his employment. He was referring to his body. I'm going to lay aside this body. I'm going to die soon, as the Lord Jesus has made clear. But Peter knows fine and well that his words will outlive him. And he's making sure that they'll always be able to remember the truth. And he states that explicitly in verse 15, that this is how they're going to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And these are some of the things that he wants. So these things that he's spoken about so far are the things that he wants us to remember and to never, ever forget. But there's a key turning point in this letter at this stage where he will spend a lot of time in the proceeding verses talking about one subject in particular and majoring on it. It's the return of Jesus. He talks in here, I think it's in verse 16, isn't it? About the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And rightly so, because Jesus himself said, while he was on this earth, uh, destroy this body and it will be raised again three days later. He spoke about the time when he would come back after his ascension and take us to be with him. Now, Peter's already taught this, so he's saying in verse 12, I'm going to remind you of this even though you know it, but the false teachers, they're, and they're, they're, they're a big problem in the churches that Peter's writing to. 
they say, and we'll get to this in chapter 2 and 3 actually, where is this coming he promised? Ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. They're like, oh, like Peter's just stood a bit scaremongering with this idea about Jesus coming back and great power and judgment and so on. You don't need to worry about that too much. And as you go through chapter 2, you start to see that, well, that doctrine has had a significant impact on their life, the way they're living their lives. They're using their denial of the powerful judgment, the return of our Lord Jesus Christ to justify their ungodly behavior. And by the way, that's the track that desertion of true doctrine will take you. Be under no illusion. And in doing so, as they question this second coming, this teaching, they're questioning Peter's credibility. So what's he going to do? How's he going to answer them? Well, he does two things. He's kinda, he kind of presents himself in something like a courtroom drama. He offers two pieces of evidence to substantiate the claim that Christ is coming back in power and glory. And he does what any masterful lawyer would do. You know, you see these kind of guys in courtroom dramas who stand up and clear their throats and just give up thorough testimony you're like well yeah, that's that's watertight and then just when you think someone's going to have a wee bit of an objection they just kind of put a little document on the table and slide it towards you you ever seen that okay you need to watch a bit more courtroom drama but that's what they do okay all the lawyers said amen um so what, that's what Peter's going to do. And those are the two things we're going to major on tonight. We're going to talk about this eyewitness testimony that Peter's, Peter's going to say, let me, let me tell you something that's true. And then he's going, to, he's going to affirm some authoritative documents. So those are the two points we're going to look at. First of all, the eyewitness testimony. So when it comes to the second coming of Jesus, what Peter wants to underline from the very start is that we are not talking about fiction. Now, he says in verse 16, We did not follow cleverly invented stories when we told you about the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the word for stories in here, in the original language, is mythos. Guess what word we got from that? Myth. Save you the embarrassment, shout now. Uh, myths were obviously very, very common in these days, both in Roman and in Greek cultures. Mythology was a great big deal. Many of their tales really contained strange and confusing hybrids of history and story, of fact and fiction. You know, pick up a copper of Homer's Iliad and you'll see what I mean. You'll find some historical events fancifully embellished with tales of gods and creatures and men of superhuman strength. Watch a movie like Jason and the Argonauts or Clash of the Titans and you'll see what I mean. Now, some people took their mythology very, very seriously. They, some people believed in these tales, these stories, to the extent that they, would, they thought that you ought to have a shrine in your room in order to kind of appease these potentially angry gods. But a common view of these myths was that though they weren't completely true they still conveyed a message that was at least still instructive for that day. You know, there was a lesson tucked away in there. And there was some kind of collective cultural appreciation for that lesson. They taught you something, so respect the cultural story. Well, it sounds like that's the kind of thing that the false teachers were saying to these Christians in Peter's day. His first name wasn't too. Um, look, let's not get too carried away by the unlikely tales of, you know, some kind of 
powerful return or some cataclysmic judgment. Let's just learn the lessons that are helpful from this Jesus character. Let's be inspired by the example. Let's not take it too far. Oh, sounds a lot like many liberals today, really. Lots of people, uh, even as Ross highlighted earlier, even pastors and theologians like the idea of what we call demythologizing the Bible. Um, they want to take out the bits that to them seem far-fetched. They, w- they want to quickly say that, of course, myth is not the same as false. There are, there are, while there are still facts contained in the apostles' teaching, we will, we, you know, we may not be in, they may not be entirely believable, but of course the deeper truth, yeah, that's, we can still learn an awful lot from that. For example, some might say, well, the resurrection of Jesus Christ not to be taken literally as a bodily resurrection, liberals would argue, but rather as a powerful symbol that God can give us new spiritual life and snatch victory from the jaws of defeat. Well, that's not an acceptable view. The Greek word mythos is, let me just highlight for you, used in the Bible on a number of occasions, always negative. Never in a positive sense. Myth is seen as the opposite of truth. Indeed, Paul warns us in 2 Timothy 4 that people will turn their ears away from the truth and wander off into myths. Not Peter. We're not talking about fiction, Peter says. We're talking about fact. Not clever invented stories, not fiction, fact. Now, I find this really fascinating. Peter is basically arguing for the second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And if I was arguing for the second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, I probably would have gone, first of all, to the words of Jesus, to the likes of Mark 14, 61 to 62, when Jesus is asked by the Sanhedrin, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed one? And Jesus responds, I am. And you will see the son of man sitting at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Oh, that's clear, isn't it? That's clear. But that's not where Peter takes them. He could have taken them to lots of different places. He could have taken them to the ascension, to the point where Jesus is taken up before them and the angels who are standing there looking at these disciples who are stunned at what they've just seen. And they said, why do you stand here staring up into the sky? This Jesus who has gone up into heaven will come back in the very same way that you have seen him go. Wow, that would have been a good place to take them. It's not where Peter takes them. Peter takes them to the transfiguration, which is the fancy name that we give the story that Ross read to us earlier from Matthew 17, of the time when Jesus' body was transformed, changed, when he was up on the mountain. Peter takes us to the transfiguration to tell us, first of all, that we saw, he says, we saw his glory. Peter, James, John, three witnesses there. And you'll recall that as Jesus took them up on the mountainside to pray, his, and as he was praying, he was changed almost into kind of a brilliant light. And his glory shone. And that's what Peter's talking about in verse 17 when he says that they saw Jesus and how he received honor and glory from God the Father. I mean, the best word to describe this whole event was glory. There was an awe to be felt and a holy fear as well. I, I always 
laugh at Peter in some respects because he didn't really know what to say. It's, uh, you know, Jesus is transfigured before them and he's like, whoa, oh, it's good for us to be here, he says. You can think he's about to fall on his face dead at the glory of Jesus that's shining out. It's good for us to be here. Shall I build three tents? Not his finest hour. But it's in the middle of that, it's almost like God the Father just says, Shh, listen, listen, this is my son whom I love. Listen to him. Stop talking. Take it in. See him for who he is. And don't dare let a word that he speaks be forgotten or ignored or reduced in terms of its authority or diluted. Believe it. Believe it. And then Peter said, we saw him. It's almost in a, in a sense he said, look, in that moment I knew that this was more than a carpenter from Nazareth. Nazareth. More than some kind of open-minded guru with love to spread. When Peter saw even the tiniest little, it's like the curtain was parted back of Jesus' true glory. Even a, a tiny, tiny bit. When he saw that slither of Christ's glory, he knew that this was someone who was not to be trifled with. And he knew that with that same power, that's the kind of power, the, the kind of power that overawed Peter in that moment was going to be magnified to the nth degree when Jesus returns. So Peter says, I only saw a glimpse of it. It was enough to overwhelm me. If you catch sight of his majestic glory when he returns and you are not ready for it or you are denying that, it's going to, that it will happen, you're going to come apart. Because it is going to be immense and unbelievable. So don't listen to these guys who say, where is this coming that he promised? Ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. You know, day after day after day. Oh, come on, it's taking you a while. Oh, come on. Peter says, look to the transfiguration. I saw a slither. And if you're not ready when he comes back, when that glory is revealed in full, it will be too late. So you see the argument that Peter is making here? Based on his eyewitness testimony, it's that this transfiguration provides further proof that one day the Messiah, Jesus, will come in great power and glory. And here's the application for us. We cannot be allowed to forget that. We must keep our perspective on the fact that there is a great capital D day coming. A day of salvation and a day of judgment. And we need to let the impact of that future event move us in the present to let it spur us on to godliness and mission. And this is what Peter wants us to do. So like the masterful lawyer, Peter has presented his case. And this is the point where he kind of slips the document across the table to seal the case once and for all. Peter's point about the return of Christ should be believed anyway on the basis of a certain document called Scripture. He's referring back with every reference to prophet or prophecy in this passage to the Old Testament. 
And this is point two, the authoritative documents. What Peter saw confirmed really what they had already been told in the scriptures. And what that underlines for Peter, for these guys, from Peter's mouth, is that the Bible just proves its trustworthiness. So in other words, the transfiguration account even makes the Old Testament prophecies sure. And you can be more certain because of what Peter has seen. So according to the Old Testament, as it talked about the glory of the Messiah King to come, and what that day will be like, you would read that the day of Lord is a, the day of the Lord is a day of salvation for some and a day of judgment for others. For one, as we sing, it's the hope of heaven; for others, the fear of hell. For one, a shout of praise; for another, the cry of anguish. Here are just a few Old Testament scriptures for you. Isaiah 13: See, the day of the Lord is coming, a cruel day with wrath and fierce anger, to make the land desolate and destroy the sinners within it. Jeremiah 46.10 But that day belongs to the Lord, the Lord Almighty, a day of vengeance for vengeance on his foes. Joel 2.31 The sun will be turned to darkness, the moon to blood, before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And Zephaniah 1, the great day of the Lord is near, near and coming quickly. Listen, the cry on that day of the Lord will be bitter That day will be a day of wrath, a day of distress and anguish, a day of trouble and ruin, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and blackness. Strong warnings. The Lord God reserves some of his strongest imagery in the scripture to describe the end. To describe that day of judgment. Then in the New Testament, of course. In the New Testament, it tells us that this great day will come. And it will come without warning. And it will come without escape. In the book of 1 Thessalonians, it's described as coming like a thief. Doesn't t- the thieves don't tell you when they're coming. It's the problem with thieves. But it's, they come and it's a surprise. And then Paul in 1 Thessalonians uses another image. He uses the image of labor. Sorry, ladies. But it's, you know, when those labor pains start, that the baby's coming. It comes without escape. And Jesus himself in Matthew 24 spoke about this as well in verses 37 to 39. He said, "As, as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man for the days before the flood. People were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage up to the day Noah entered the ark and they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them away. That is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Why are we given these warnings to help us remember that it's coming. To see that the Lord is true in the word that he has spoken. Not to reduce its importance, not to pass it off as lie, but to accept it. That's why Peter says that we, in verse 19, have the word of the prophets made more certain. And here's your application. Pay attention to it. Really pay attention to it. These words are not to be trifled with. 
God has been very choosy with what he's given us in his authoritative words. We are to pay attention to it. Why? Well, Peter explains. As to a light shining in a dark place. Peter uses again a strong word here for the darkness that we live in. It means totally squalid. Like the most gut-churningly disgusting dirt ever. And it's the blackest darkness. The world is a dark place, Peter's trying to say. The only hope that we've got to make it through is if you have the light. And that's how his word acts. As Psalm 119 says, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. That's correct. So Peter's saying to these believers, you've got the light of, of my testimony now. And you've got the light of the Old Testament prophets. And really, in some sense, Peter actually stands as representative of the New Testament. Indeed, he, he knows he's writing Scripture. He even talks at the end of chapter 3 about the fact that Paul is writing Scripture. We'll get to that. And he says, look, you've got, you've got my testimony, you've got the New Testament, and you've got the Old Testament as well. Pay attention to it, he says. So are you doing so? Are you, are you paying attention to it? Are you, kind of, are you like the kind of person who looks at the Bible and says, oh, that's really interesting, and walks away and, you know, if I were to ask you at midday what you had read that morning, you would have completely forgotten because you weren't really paying attention to it. Peter wants us to make every effort, remember, to make every effort in all sorts of areas, particularly in growing in knowledge. And knowledge is vital in Peter's mind. That's why he says in verse 2 that the grace and peace that we should long for, that we should long to grow in, come through the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's why he tells us in verse 3 that the divine power that God has given us for everything we need for life and godliness comes through the knowledge of Jesus, the one who called us by his own glory and goodness. And that we're add to, adding to our faith regularly goodness and knowledge and so on. It's vital. That as we grow in what we know, we not only become like Jesus, we hold on to the truth. We pay attention to it in a way that it changes not only our lives, but others around us. If you're here tonight and you're not a Christian, you might be wondering about the truthfulness and the trustworthiness of this Bible. We've spoken about this many times here. I would be more than happy to chat with anybody about it. I spent six months of my life trying to disprove the scriptures and pass it off as mythos, myths. I knew a growing sense of awareness that the more I read it, the more it attested to its own trustworthiness. And the more I looked outside of the Bible, even at historical documents that were Jewish and Roman, those who were anti-Christian. Well, those accounts testified also to the trustworthiness of what we have here. And my encouragement for you is to pick it up and not read it like it's some academic exercise. These are the scriptures that tell you about Jesus and there is no one else in all creation. No one else by whom you can be made right and ready 
for this coming capital D day of judgment. Peter was overwhelmed at a slither. You, you want to be ready for when he returns. The big thing that gets in the way is sin. It's our rebellion against God, our denial of his words, refusal to submit ourselves to his existence and his authority. The appeal of the scriptures again and again is turn away from that. That's wrong. Come to Jesus. His arms are open wide. Even if you've sinned terribly, he has more grace than you will find believable. He is extremely gracious and I encourage you to come to him. Speak to myself or Ross about it or maybe the person who brought you tonight. It's don't leave without without having some kind of integrity and examining whether or not this is true, these scriptures, too much hangs on it. So we are to be those who pay attention to these authoritative documents, the ones that guide us through this world as a light and a dark place for how long until that day dawns. Again, a reference to the second coming. And until the morning star rises in your hearts, which tells you. So the the morning star was Venus, actually, which catches the sun's rays before dawn. And it was really just, it just holds the promise that dawn's coming. It's nearly here. (coughs) Nearly here. And Peter is saying to us that Jesus is the morning star. And his appearing is the first sign of a new dawn when the new heaven and new earth will be established. And all sin and suffering and everything that makes us go, ugh about this world will be gone and true joy will be installed. And Peter says that at this coming, there is, it's not just going to be these external signs, there's going to be an internal sign. Those who love him will have that morning star rising in their hearts. There will be a joy inexpressible. So yes, a cry of anguish for those who are not ready, but for those who believe in Jesus a cry and a shout of joy and praise greater than our sweetest moment on earth multiplied a million times. So brothers and sisters, esteem the word of God. Hold on to it. Pay attention to it. Do we need encouragement to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus? Let's go to the scriptures. Let's do it together. Do we need encouragement to remember that this life is not all there is? This is just a tent. The permanent dwelling has come. Do we need those reminders? Let's go to the scriptures. Let's do it together. Do we need reminded that the day really will dawn one day? Let's go to the scriptures. Let's do it together. That's how we grow in the knowledge of God's. That's how we become effective and productive in what we know. That's how we keep ourselves ready for that day when it comes. And that, that is what will help us bring as many people with us on that day. We who know this truth and are established in it need those regular reminders. And I have no idea, I have no idea how many Sundays we have gathered in this particular building. I've no idea how many verses have been read and how many verses have been expounded and applied. 
But we can be confident of this, that God has been faithful. God has been faithful to us and God has been pleased when this word has been read and preached and heard and heeded and applied. It has been a central component of ministry in this building as it served us. And it will be by the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ the same when we move. We must keep it central. It must typify ministry in Chanwick Place. And in fact, we must pass this word on and hold this light out. The eyewitness testimony of the New Testament apostles. The authoritative documents of the Old Testament. Together, God's inerrant, flawless, sufficient word. Hold on to it. Let's bow our heads. Let's pray.